0: debate these days concerning the issue of immigration into our country. America has long been known as the land of opportunity for many people from different countries. They've come to America to seek a better life for themselves, for their families. Maybe you have ancestors that immigrated to the United States at some point and Uh, From 1892 to 1954, more than 12 million people uh, sailed through New York Harbor seeking a better life, seeking a new start in the promised land of America. Today, even, people continue to come to America for these same reasons. Because no matter how bad it is in the United States, no matter how bad it gets here, there are people who still believe and convinced that it is better than where they presently are. And so they come. Thousands of people annually seek uh, seek to enter the United States. Some do it legally, through paperwork and through proper channels, and some do it illegally. This is where the debate lies. Who should be allowed into our country? Turn on the news. You don't have to wait very long, and that's where we... That's where the conversation goes. Who should get in? Who should stay out? And what protocol should we use to determine these people? What, if anything, should be required for someone to enter this country? And all the while, these people, foreign immigrants, are asking the question, either by word or by paperwork or by their actions, may I come and stay, and this is essentially the question that David is asking here in our psalm this morning. He's asking God, may I come and stay? Just as with any sovereign nation, there are rules for entrance. And there's permission that must be granted to come to God's city. Unlike nations that are ruled by men, however, you can't slip by. You can't illegally cross the border. No one gets in unaware all who come into God's city will do it at his consent or not at all. And essentially, every religion is trying to answer the question that man asks, may I come and stay? And every religion seeks to try to answer that in some way. And so I borrowed this title from a commentary that I read and it stuck with me, may I come and stay? And this is how we will uh, try to understand Psalm 15. As we look at the first verse there, this is the question that is answered for the rest of the Psalm. It's only five verses, but the first verse is the question, verses two through five is the answer O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? This tent or this tabernacle. Uh, your Bible might read tabernacle. There reminds us of the Old Testament tabernacle, where God met with His with, with people who dwelled among His people in the Old Testament tabernacle, and you know that. History, you know, that only the priests could enter in. There were, in, in fact, there were stages where only uh, Gentiles could only go so far, and then only women could go so far, and then only a certain uh, type of uh, uh, only priests could go so much further, and then even then, only the priest himself, once a year under certain conditions, could enter God's dwelling place. And David is not, <coughs> excuse me, he's not specifically speaking about the tabernacle. Uh, in the religious system, but in a way, it it does relate. And in just a general sense, he's speaking about where God lives, where God is. David wants to be there. He talks about this holy hill, and that's the hill of Zion. There are many, many psalms that have to do with Zion. Uh, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness, in the uh, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Well, for us to understand Psalm 15, and particularly the question that David is asking, we need to understand why in the world he's asking this question to begin with. Why is David asking who may be allowed to enter? Well, firstly, it's because he wants to be one of those people. David wants to be where God is, and he wants to know what is required of him to enter into God's presence. This is where God is. This tent is the place where God dwells. This city of Zion is the place where God rules and reigns. It is God's dwelling place, and David wants to be where God is. You're in Psalm 15. If you'll turn over to Psalm 27 and keep your place here, it's just a few pages, but I want to show you what uh, David says in Psalm 27. Down in verse number 4, Psalm 27 and verse 4, he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord sacrifices with shouts of joy i will sing and make melody to the lord this is where david wants to be and david wants to be there forever all the days of his life to behold the beauty of the lord to gaze upon his beauty and inquire in his temple this is david's desire he wants to be where god is in Psalm 16, if you go back to Psalm 15, and uh, because that's where we want to end up, but if you look in Psalm 16, uh, he describes it in another way. In Psalm 16 and verse 11, he says that in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David is uh, en- enraptured with God. He is captivated by God's beauty and God's power and God's holiness, and David wants to be where God is. Let me dwell in your tents forever, he says in Psalm 61. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. He echoes the psalmist's words in Psalm 42 uh, as the deer pants for the water. So my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and and dwell with God or meet with God. This is David's cry as well. David wants to be where God is because where God is, there is fullness of joy. Where God is, there are pleasures forevermore. Where God is, there is safety. There is refuge. There is a hiding place. But also, David asks the question because God has requirements. The question is not whether or not David wants to go. The question is whether or not David will be allowed to go. Can he go? He's asking, may I go or can I go? And Because that God has requirements. If you'll turn to Isaiah 33. Now leave your place in Psalm 15 because we want definitely to, to, to come back to here, but I want to lay some groundwork to understand why David is even asking this very question. This morning, Donnie read uh, Psalm 24. And Psalm 24 is very similar to Psalm 15. And where we are going now, Isaiah 33 and verse 14 is also very similar to these two psalms, uh, particularly our Psalm 15. The issue, again, is not whether David wants to be there. It's can he be there because of what we hear in, in Isaiah 33. It reads like a psalm. And I'm going to start in verse number 14. It says, The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Here's a question. Then there's an answer. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands, lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, and it goes on. But I want you to notice there that sinners are not welcome. Sinners cannot stand because it says there is consuming fire there. They can't live there because fire is used as judgment and our God is a consuming fire. And and we can't stand before God if we're sinners because it, we can't stand. That's what the psalmist said in Psalm 1.6. Uh, sinners, the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And to dwell in God's tent is to dwell with this consuming fire and Everlasting burnings. Psalm 5.4, David says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. And so the question must be asked, Do I qualify to dwell with God? Because if I am evil, I don't qualify. If I am wicked, if I am a sinner, I cannot go. As the Apostle John puts it in his first epistle, First John 1 verse 5, he says, God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And he goes on to say that if we say we walk in the light, but we walk in darkness, his truth isn't in us because you can't have both. You can't be in the light and, or, and, and the darkness and be with God who is in the light. He doesn't, he doesn't have any darkness within him. And this is, this is what David says. This is what John is teaching. This is what uh, the whole of scripture is teaching that God is holy. He is light. He is just and righteous and will not allow anything otherwise to be in His presence. John Calvin described us this way, those only have access to God who are His genuine servants and who live a holy life. So the question is, who may be God's guest in His city? Who may enjoy His hospitality in His tent? And then we're back in Psalm 15 and we begin in verse number 2 and we read the answers. Now this is not an exhaustive list. This is not answering every requirement that is necessary to dwell with God, but it is sufficient to describe essentially a righteous person, a holy person, or a man, a person of integrity. These are the people that please God. These are the people whom God will allow into His city, into His tent, to dwell with Him and live with Him forevermore. It describes some of the qualities of the citizens of God's city, Zion. So we read this in regards to holiness. And everything that David is going to say in verses 2 down to verse number 5 is in regards to holiness. And I've borrowed the uh some just helpful categories from a couple of different uh men to just because I, I wouldn't have I couldn't have made it sound any better. And so I'm using uh some from uh from both from Christopher Ash and Derek Kidner to 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 help you and, and me to understand these in different groups, and so we'll see them uh as we as we work through them. You can see them in the bulletin there. But we're describing a holy man and looking at the qualities of this person's holiness and we see in verse number two he has a holy character a holy character look at verse two he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart there are three things that are going on there three things the first thing is that he walks blamelessly and this first one kind of covers the other two this is his whole lifestyle everything about his life is blameless everything about his life is beyond uh reproach everything is is is, is all, all above the board he is' in, he has is a man of integrity but then it it goes on to explain inwardly and outwardly he is this way he has holiness outwardly because he does what is right literally that means that he works righteousness he does righteous things because he is a holy man Uh, psalm 106 verse 3 says blessed are they who observe justice who do righteousness at all times that's what this man does but not only is it outward righteousness it's also an inward righteousness because inwardly he speaks the truth in his heart it's a very interesting phrase because it speaks about his trustworthiness that you may know that what he is, is doing outwardly is the same as what he is inwardly. There's no hypocrisy. In Psalm 12 too, it says, everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. But that's not the man of Psalm 15. The man of Psalm 15 speaks truth in his heart as well as outwardly. Derek Kidner describes it like this. What this man says is one with what he is. He's a real person and he's real truth. He is righteous outwardly, but it's not a show. Inwardly, he is the same person. So we see that his holy character is described in verse 2. In verse 3, we see that his speech is also marked by holiness. Verse number 3 says, he does not slander with his tongue. He does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. So first of all, he doesn't slander. He doesn't backbite. He doesn't insult. He doesn't speak hurtful and false words about people. He doesn't just say things about people that aren't true in order to defame them. He doesn't do evil. He doesn't wrong or hurt his neighbor. And notice that it's describing people in his proximity. He does no evil. And this phrase here is surrounded by language phrases. And so I understand this to mean then that this evil is with his communication, with his conversations. He doesn't take up reproach. He he casts no slur, kick up things that would, uh, would discredit his friend. For instance, in Proverbs 12, uh, 10 and verse 12, it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. The man of Psalm 15 is not one who stirs up, kicks up reproaches, kicks up insults, and slurs against his friend. Rather, his love it covers all the offenses. We see in verse number four uh, that he is holy in in relation to his values. It says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fears the Lord. This is, this is one who despises evil people and honors the God-fearers. To despise an evil person is, is saying that he does not hold the vile, wicked men of this world in high reproach and in high esteem. He doesn't model after them. He doesn't uh, aspire to be like one of them. Rather, he aspires to be like those who fear the Lord. He holds God's people in high esteem. If you think about what Paul says in Romans 1 and verse 32, as he begins to describe how man has, has uh, veered further and further and further away from God, uh, towards the end of the chapter, Paul writes this, that the wicked know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, but it goes on to say, yet that they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is not the man of Psalm 15. He does not do the things that displease God and he does not approve of the people who do those things. But this man admires and values the fear of God and stands with those who do so. We look at the end of verse number four and uh, the last two lines of verse four and we see also his honor, uh, his holiness in his dealings with other people. Verse four, uh, 4, I'll read all of verse 4, "...in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent." This is his, his honor, his holiness, in the way that he deals with other people. And we see it marked in two different ways. First, we see it in his commitments. He makes a commitment. He makes a vow. He gives his word and at his own personal cost. Maybe it's, it's a commitment that was made before realizing it would, it would cost him. But I, I think it was made knowing how much it would cost him. And yet he does not try to back out. In the Bible, uh, in, in Bible times, I, I read uh, several occasions where it was it was uh, considered appropriate or allowable uh, to make a make a promise, but then realizing how uh, how how much it actually might cost you to go and, 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 and try to get that person's permission to back out of that to 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 be okay with with breaking because I didn't realize it was going to cost this much. I didn't realize it was going to hurt me this much. But the man of Psalm 15 uh, swears to his own hurt and does not change. He doesn't go back. He is a man of His Word. He doesn't back out of commitments when it costs him. But also, we see the holiness in his dealings in regard to his contentment. Not only his commitments, but his contentment. The last part there speaks of how he deals with people in regards to money. That money does not affect him. Money does not persuade or influence him. He doesn't loan his money with interest. And he's not talking about... Uh, you know making money in like a banking industry, but rather in these times when uh, in a farming community when uh, maybe a low crop yielded you know less less uh, harvest and you needed some extra money because you needed to be able to get ready for the next year or whatever they would they would go to their neighbors, they might go to their friends and brothers and they would ask for a loan and the and the scriptures specifically commanded them not to charge interest to their to their uh, to their brothers. It was. They was allowed to do that to other people, to Gentiles that they could loan money to. It's not saying that banking interest is wicked and against God. He's talking about uh, here's a brother who is in debt. He needs help, and I am not to put him further into debt by offering him my help. And this is this is uh, exactly what the, the the Psalm 15 man does not do. He does not loan money with interest. I mean he doesn't drive his friend deeper into debt. But at the same time, money does not affect his judgment either, because at the end of those verses there, it says that he doesn't take bribes against the innocent. Now think about what it's talking about there. The innocent, if you've, go, if you've ever gone to other countries as, uh, as they get a further away from a, a civilized society, uh, it's very common to uh, be pulled over by the police. I remember going on a mission trip down in Central America, and the missionary that was there told us, you know, if we ever get pulled over... Um, we, we, the, the police will try to pull us off into an alley somewhere and they will threaten us uh, and all they want is some money. And so you pay them off. You have to keep cash around. You have to pay them off. Otherwise, they'll throw you in jail and you didn't do anything wrong. They just, they don't make enough on their salary. And so you just, you've got to pay them off. And that's taking a bribe against the innocent. You're taking advantage of the people because you're in a power, a position of power. And yet this man does not take those bribes. He doesn't take advantage of his position. His judgment is not affected by profit. In other words, he is free from greed. And as David answers all of these questions about the man who might enter God's tent, he finishes in verse 5, he who does these things shall never be moved. He will never be shaken. He will never be moved. In other words, he will get in and he will stay in. He will be allowed into God's city and he will never be told to leave. Now, it's important that as we read, and this is where the difficulty of the, of the chapter, uh, began to spring up for me because all of this was pretty self-evident. It was, it was pretty much right there. And, and I understood that. But as I read through this, there's a tendency that, at least in my mind, and maybe it's in a natural tendency for most people to read things like this as a checklist. Well, here are the things that I need to start doing if I'm going to be accepted by God. I need to start uh, 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 loaning my money and not charging people interest. And I need to start uh, stop slandering people with my tongue. And, and all of these things. And here's a checklist of all the things that I need to, be, to do. That is not, I think, what the, the, the psalm is teaching us. This is not uh, teaching us the things that we must do to please God. However, number one, these are things that do matter to God. These things are important to God. That's, these are the things that, that, that David says, those who dwell in your city have to do these things. And these are things that, that count to God. These are things that please God. We should pay attention to them. We should know that these are the things that make God happy. These are the things by which God designed that His people should show themselves to be a peculiar and holy people by leading a just and upright life. In the words of Calvin, we cannot ignore these things. We cannot avoid these things and say, well, you know what? We live under grace. God does not care because God does not change. And if God cared about them, then God cares about these things now. So these things matter to God. But number two, these things, these are things that we cannot do perfectly. You can deceive yourself and say, "Oh, I, I do these things. I try. Well, at least I try very hard to do these things. But there's the truth. I try, and sometimes I do, but not always. Now, when we read the Psalms, they're not built in such a way that the chronology of the Psalms are dependent on one another. So Psalm 14 does not uh, lead us in specifically to Psalm 15. But if you'll turn back to Psalm 15, and I want to show you some truth that we find coincidentally in Psalm 14. In Psalm 14... The, 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 the song is lamenting the corruption of the people who hate God. And it starts off in a very familiar way and one that we would kind of expect it to be. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. So it makes me feel like we're going to talk about the fool. I'm safe. He's not talking about me. I believe in God. Therefore, this one's not about me. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. And to further uh sink myself into this in this predicament the apostle paul takes these verses when he writes in romans 3:10 as it is written none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for god all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one this idea of sin is is both universal and perpetual the people in the first century that Paul wrote to dealt with sin the people of the of the of the biblical times in the old testament times dealt with this sin all are unrighteous no one seeks god no one does good not even what so while i thought i may have been off the hook because i'm not the fool i'm not off the hook because i am part of the none no does good so number 2 we we cannot do these things perfectly but What I think the point of this is is to remind us that number three, Jesus Christ did and does all of this and more perfectly on our behalf. He is the one who entered the tent for us on our behalf. Listen to the words uh, of Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 in verse 11 says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It goes on later in verse twenty four to say, "For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God." On our behalf. I'm not the man of Psalm 15. I would like to be the man of Psalm 15, but I cannot do these things. I was born disqualified. And so were you. All of us were. But Jesus qualifies. Jesus has perfectly done these things for me. For those who believe. He made atonement for us. He is the one who makes us blameless in verse number two. John writes in 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is that atoning sacrifice for our sin. Jesus is the way that we come to the Father. And if you know John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way. The truth and the life, no man comes unto the Father but by me. But Paul writes in Ephesians as well, Ephesians 2.18, Through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. We're not immigrants anymore. We are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is what Christ has done. Because none of us qualify. We read this and we long to be this type of a person, but that's only because of the work that Christ has already done in us. But when I realize that with the longing, it's because I recognize I don't do it. I fail. But Jesus didn't fail. And so in answer to my question, may I come and stay? Jesus answers, yes. Come through me. You may come to the Father through me. The writer of Hebrews again declares, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So When we sing this psalm, when we pray this psalm, Well, Israel didn't claim to have these qualities. None of the the Israelites, David didn't, none of the Israelites who would have sung this would have claimed to say "I I am this person unless they did it hypocritically, pharisaically. But when we sing this song, we don't see these qualities in ourselves. We see them perfectly in Christ. And therefore we cling to Him. We desire that by the work of His Spirit within us, we may bear these qualities we may begin to develop these characteristics in our own lives and enter into the presence of God and enjoy Him forever. We sang the song about the wondrous mystery. And in that song there's the line, my righteousness is Jesus. He is my righteousness. It's not mine. Uh, I don't know, I think we sang it, not in me, I'm sorry, not, that, not the same song. But we, it's not about me. It's about Him. And I read this, and and as one, one writer says, we don't read this and think that, oh, I qualify. We also don't read this and think, well, that doesn't matter. We read this, first of all, in despair and say, I can't be this. And then we read it in gratefulness because someone was this and wants to do it on my behalf for me. And then we read it in Christ, longing and desiring God Make this happen in my life. Make me a person holy. Make me one of integrity. Make me one who is holy in conversation and holy in what I value and holy in how I deal with my friends and my neighbors and the people all around me. God, make me this type of person. I long to be this type of person because it pleases You. Because I want to dwell with You. I want to live with You with you forever, as David says. And so we read this psalm with the same longing that David has. God, I want to be with you. We look, through, we look at Christ and recognize I can be, I can enter, and never leave because of what Jesus did for me.